Uh, Mrs. Darcy, I had a wonderful time, but I must really be going. To a liquor store. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you can't go yet. The best is just ahead. Oh, good. They're going to hang themselves. <laughs> Karaoke! Oh, no. I'm going to hang myself. Let's rock. Thanks, Dad. Can I get a woman? No Man Presents, live from the nudie bar, the Married with Children podcast. Welcome back to the Married with Children podcast. I just want to say, isn't this nice? A quiet evening alone with my loved ones. Oh, Luigi, that's so sweet. Oh, don't gush it up, Annabelle. He's talking about the clams he's eating. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm joined today with my fearless co-host, Chris Gunter. How's it going, buddy? And we also have our fearless queen of Australia, Annabelle. Oh, well, thank you. And after this, I, I really must be going to a liquor store. <laughs> and as a special treat tonight, we have a special guest co-host, Carolyn. Konnichiwa, watashiwa, Carolyn Desu. Clams, clams, clams! <laughs> uh, welcome back again to the Married with Children podcast. This week we are reviewing Turning Japanese, Season 10, Episode 20. Original air date, March 17th, 1996. So this was St. Patrick's Day of 1996. Marcy is up for a promotion, but to get promoted, she needs to impress her Japanese boss, Mr. Shimakawa, by serving him dinner and presenting him her grateful neighbors, the Japanese Bundys. Of course, she needs to bribe the real Bundys to stay out of sight for the duration of the visit. However, it just happens that Mr. Shimakawa hears the sound of Al's 1971 Dodge, a car that's missing from his junk car collection. To ensure her promotion, Marcy needs the car for Mr. Shimakawa. But what will it take to get Al to give up his car? Director, Sam W. Orinder. Sounds like a lizard. <laughs> Writers, Fran Kalfer Shimp. Special guest stars, Pat Morita as Mr. Shimakawa, Dan Tullis Jr. as Officer Dan, Iqbal Thiba as Iqbal, Todd Parker as Officer Stan, Daryl Kunitomi as Japanese Al, Angela Spangler as Bambi, and Lucky the Dog as Lucky the Dog. What would make Marcy dance at a nudie bar? I can see everything with my x-ray onion eyeglasses. Married with children, part of a full hour Sunday. So hi again, everyone. And Carolyn, thanks for joining us again. No problem. You know, our uh, podcast fans really love it when you're on. I know it's been a few months since they've heard you. So we're really glad to have you tonight. And you're reunited with your old Bundyology friend, Annabelle. <laughs> Yes, it's always great to see her. Represent. <laughs> That's right. Old school. It's always a pleasure for me too, uh, by the way, ladies, to, to uh, you know, 
work the podcast with you. It's always a lot of fun. Oh, Chris, you're so sweet. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and our, our podcast uh, review tonight is going to be gender balanced, right? <laughs> <laughs> we normally don't get that uh, on the Married with Children podcast, so I'm always looking forward to I'm it. I'm afraid this episode kind of needs that. <laughs> So the title for this episode, Turning Japanese, comes from a popular song by the English band The Vapors from their 1980 album, New Clear Days. It was an international hit, becoming the song for which The Vapors are best known. The lyric describes the narrator being separated from a woman he loves and thus preoccupied with photos of her. The song prominently features an oriental riff played on guitar. So Annabelle, you had some comments on this. Well, yeah, uh, that song there's one sort of interpretation you could say about that song uh, rumor has it that turning japanese referred to the asian facial features maybe men might get at a certain moment during doing let's say the bundy it's like you know, causing <laughs> the act causing the man to squint and therefore resembled a Japanese person's eyes. I mean, yes, but the song's author, the, the guy who wrote it, did deny that. And in a claim in an interview on VH1, and it said he, it could have been turning Portuguese, could have been turning Lebanese, it could have been anything that fit that phrase. So people were making assumptions that that's what that song was about, but apparently it's not just about. I love one. Well, I guess just people have dirty minds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Before uh, we started recording, Chris had a question for me because, um, you know, the, the description of the song we got off of, you know, Wikipedia, and it there's a word at the end. It says the song prominently features an oriental riff played on guitar. So he just asked, you know, was that a, a word... That's uh, used nowadays. Uh, yeah, well, I was just saying, are we allowed to use that word nowadays? And I actually, uh, I, I did a, little, a small amount of research, and and you know, using the word Oriental in reference to a person, it, c- it can be considered derogatory. But if you're using it towards an inanimate object, like a rug, for example, is not as derogatory. And the reason why is because there's not an actual country. You know, like you can say Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese, so on and so forth. Those are all countries, but there's no country named Orient or the Orient or anything like that. So that was what I found when I did a little bit of research. But yeah, I was when I first saw that, I was like, you know, are we allowed to use that word nowadays? And you're absolutely correct, Chris. I mean, one of the things I could say about the word is, you know, really it comes from the t- age of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, that, the area of the world where like Japan, China, Korea is located was referred to as the Orient. So so there was like a, I guess in the olden days, it was like to just describe the entire area was just the Orient, therefore the word Oriental was used. Right, right. But if if you've ever lived in in an Asian neighborhood, so uh, Carolyn, you'll appreciate this. So I spent most of my life in Flushing, Queens, right? So Flushing is actually divided between Chinese and Koreans. Mm Right. And God forbid you'd mix the two of them up because they absolutely hate each other. <laughs> you know, and, and it's very distinct. I mean, there's a lot of history behind that. But uh, obviously, I mean, there's a blanket term Asian that's used. But I mean, technically, Asian could be, you know, as far as India. So it's almost like anyone from like that part of the world. But generally, 
the term is very specific. Now, one of the things, you know, there's a joke we're going to come up with later when uh, Jefferson is talking to Mr. Shimakawa and he's talking about, well, reading at the Joy Luck Club and then he's reading about the Kama Sutra. And I think they were playing into that joke of, well, you know, the average American doesn't really know the difference between between yep, them. you're you're right, and, and and that that was the other thing I saw when I was doing a little bit of research on it is it's kind of an old fashioned way of of lumping or clumping all um, Asian people in together. When in reality, as you just said, they're very different. You know, a Chinese person and a, or a Japanese or a Vietnamese or a Korean, so on and so forth. Another example of that would be you know using the term or the phrase Hispanic. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a lazy way of clumping. Obviously, someone that's from Guatemala is a lot different than someone who's from San Salvador, for example, or, you know, El Salvador. Same way as different as someone who's from from Mexico or Colombia and so on and so forth. So (laughs) that was what I found. Totally. So let's get underway. So we begin with Al, Bud and Kelly sitting on the couch watching TV and Family Matters is on. You know, the great thing about your mother being out of town aside from the fact that she's not here, (laughs) is the three of us get a chance to bond. Dad, as long as we're bonding. You know, I'm gonna be graduating from college pretty soon and uh, I got some pretty serious life. But shut up! (laughs) Family Matters is on now. If you got anything to learn about life, you can learn it from Urkel. (laughs) And his fat cop neighbor. (laughs) I hate this show. How could you not love Urkel? I mean, those glasses and those pants and the suspenders. Family Matters is an American television sitcom that originated on ABC from September 22, 1989 to May 9, 1997, before moving to CBS from September 19, 1997 to July 17, 1998. A spinoff of Perfect Strangers, the series revolves around the Winslow family, a middle-class African-American living in Chicago, Illinois. Midway through the first season, the show introduced the Winslow's nerdy neighbor, Steve Urkel, played by Jalil White, who was originally scripted to appear as a one-time character, however quickly became the show's breakout character, joining the main cast. Having run for nine seasons, Family Matters became the second-longest-running non-animated U.S. sitcom with a predominantly African-American cast behind only The Jeffersons, which ran for 11 seasons. Having aired 215 episodes, Family Matters is ranked third only behind Tyler Perry's House of Pain and The Jeffersons. And interestingly, you know, looking at the number of episodes, it's uh, just right behind them. Uh, Tyler Perry's House of Pain is first with 254, The Jeffersons is second with 253, and uh, Family Matters is third with 215, so not far behind those two. Amazing. So don't you think it's funny that Bud is actually trying to bond with Al? (laughs) Yeah, it actually looked like, I mean, like a standard sitcom setup where it was like, hey, you know, Dad, I need some advice, and all of a sudden, you know, Al just says to him, well, (laughs) you know, shut up, Bud, you know, or (laughs) Urkel's on I thought it was pretty funny. His bonding, his bonding session lasted about 15 seconds until until someone asked for actual advice. Although, I mean, at this point, Bud should know better to ask him for advice, but he tries. God bless right. him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I noticed that. The other thing I noticed is uh, Al's wearing that nasty purple shirt again. <laughs> right. <we all> <laughs> he starts wearing that, what, around season eight or nine? I can't remember, but I know we all hate it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Annabelle is our fashionista. <laughs> I think she can pinpoint it for us, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he wore. I want to say he wore it in season seven, but he did wear a very similar shirt on a talk show once. So I'm wondering if he, if Ed O'Neill himself loves it. <laughs> he might. <laughs> if so, I apologize. <laughs> it's the tenth season. I think by this point, he could pretty much, uh, you know, call his own shots in a lot of ways. <laughs> mm. Yeah. The shirt was very 1996. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I like that Bud mentions he's about to graduate from college. You know I like continuity and things. That's right. Right. And uh, that's going to happen in a few weeks, mm-hmm. actually. So let me ask you, who amongst you were Family Matters fans, if any? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, for what it was, what it was worth. I mean, it's like watching it now, it, it comes off as extremely corny. And goofy and over the top, especially the later seasons once, you know, I I don't know if you guys watched it, but Steve Urkel had developed this machine and this potion that could turn him into Stefan or Kale, which was like a alternate persona, you know, it it got really over the top and corny. But I mean, I enjoyed it. I watched it as it was going on. I I actually met Jalil White a couple of years ago. He was super nice. So, yeah. I did watch it when it was on. Um, I wasn't a religious viewer or anything like that. But yeah, it did get a bit much, just like when it was just all Urkel all the time. In 1998, on Channel 9 here in Australia, they burned off the last season of Married with Children after Family Matters. So they both aired their last seasons together. So I watched a lot of it then as well. That is strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Annabelle, it, it's funny you mentioned that you know, how the latter seasons was all Urkel all the time. Cause I, I watched, uh, I watched a, uh, program recently on, um, I can't remember the lady's name, the lady that played Harriet Carl's, uh, wife on the show. Oh, yes. And that was actually the reason she left. Do, do you remember how in the final season they had another lady play his wife? Do you remember that? Oh, vaguely. I don't know if you watched it at that point. But anyways, yeah. she actually left. Yeah. Yeah. So the first actress to play Harriet was Joe Marie yeah, Payton. Yeah, Joe Marie Payton. Yeah. And then she was and she was replaced with uh, Judy Ann Elder in season Right. Nine. Uh, uh, Miss Payton, the reason, the reason she left is because she got fed up because the show started very well grounded. It was based on family ma- family values and family matters and, and such that every American family, every you know African-American family would face at the time. And then the show and the show introduced uh, Steve Urkel halfway through, I believe, the first season. And then it just it slowly morphed into the Steve Urkel show, basically. And that actress, you know, when she was brought on, she was told she was going to be basically the second most important part. And all of a sudden, Steve Urkel took over the entire show. And then they they introduced a character named Waldo. And then there was a character named Weasel. And then. Laura and Eddie became central characters because they were, you know, Steve was chasing Laura. And then Laura, and then at one point, Steve had a girlfriend named Myra. And it just like all of a sudden she went from the second most important character to like the fifth or sixth most important. <laughs> so she she basically because she wanted to move on with her career because she didn't like the way the show was headed. And uh, they actually she left in the middle of the final season. So they had to find another actress to play Carl's wife in the middle of it. <laughs> so it was like those episodes of the, of the second lady are so weird because, you know, you see Carl with, it would almost be like Katie Seagal leaving in the middle of season 11 <laughs> and another actress playing uh, Peg Bundy. It would be super weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, Family Matters was a spinoff of Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Because originally, uh, the Harriet character, she played the elevator operator, as I recall. Um, and I remember watching Fam- Family Matters probably in the first first or second season but then like i think as it as urkel became like the focus like i turned it off i couldn't take it it got too crazy for you (laughs) yeah and uh the actor who played his fat cop neighbor as referenced by al was reginald vell johnson i was wondering about that yes i I was wondering what that that reference was so that's carl winslow and uh he's uh from uh, my home borough of queens new york and he's in die hard the first movie yeah. Yes. And there's also an interview out there. He's on an interview from about 1990 with Amanda Burse. Oh, huh, how about that? Yeah. So Reginald Vell Johnson, he had a, a brief appearance in Ghostbusters and even in Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> oh, wow. I yeah, he's a fine that. actor. The, the dynamic between him and Steve was really, really good on the show. I really enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's it doesn't have a lot of re, replay or rewatch value when I watch it now as an adult. It's corny as hell, <laughs> but I, I did enjoy it as a kid. So Marcy and Jefferson come in. Speaking of annoying neighbor boys and suspenders. <laughs> so you know, I'll make a comment that you know Marcy's dressed up like Urkel. <laughs> oh yeah. As, as soon as she walked in wearing those suspenders, I knew exactly where that joke was going because they had just said, <laughs> well, you know, the way Urkel was dressed. <laughs> that was the most 90s look I've ever, mm-hmm. I've ever seen. <laughs> Casual Marcy looked more 90s because cause when she was dressed up for business, it was kind of classical business, you know, business lady. But And she was so game for it, too. She could wear anything. Well, especially when uh, we see her later in the episode. Oh, right? uh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I didn't notice. Amanda actually got some wolf whistles when she came in. Maybe because Kelly didn't have an entrance. People went woo woo at her, <laughs> which I don't think. I think she's beautiful, but I don't think she married it at that time. But <laughs> I guess they were sarcastic. No, I, I, you know, honestly, I didn't think she looked that bad at all. No, I kind of like that look. <laughs> but like you say, it's very nineties. It is, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was talking about later. All right, yeah. So not now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, (laughs) so marcy has some very important news but she's not able to say it out loud because jefferson keeps cutting her off everyone i have great news that you will all want to hear marcy got a promotion at the bank that will take her to japan once a month (laughs) jefferson you stole my thunder Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, dear. It won't happen again. Okay. I'm gonna She's going to be vice president. <laughs> vice president in charge of all transactions between her branch and the home office in Japan. Are you finished? Almost. <laughs> With her salary increase, she'll never have to worry about money again. Well, you will if you don't shut up. <laughs> Guys, I'm just so happy for both of you. What say we celebrate by you getting the hell out of here and me watching my TV? <laughs> treat yeah that is uh hella annoying whenever you have big news to share or like you know <laughs> exciting news to share and someone steals your thunder <laughs> i don't know if anybody's ever had that happen <laughs> yeah well you know to me like this uh, is almost like a callback to the Hagawar episode don't you think annabelle yeah it's, it's reminiscent of that yeah in season eight this 
this in because you're poor and married to Al, which is, of course, redundant. <laughs> but guess what? I'm rich! Rich? Well, how'd you do that? Maybe I could do it, too. I worked for it. Oh. <laughs> you see, Trans-Mexican Motors has been looking for a place to build their new car, the Jaguar GT. <laughs> and I found them a piece of property right next to Polk High School. It is a $400 million deal, and I get a finder's fee. How much is that? $1.3 million. <laughs> Plus, a brand new Jaguar for each of us. <laughs> I mean, because it talks about how she's going to fly to Japan, you know, like once a month, the big salary increase, you know, yada, yada, yada. Vice president. Wow. That's right. One thing about Marcy is she does she does work hard and she does work she does try and like claw her way up the ladder, but she keeps on getting um, kicked back down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had that in my notes for later. We've seen her get demoted and lose her job how many times now? But she always gets it back. She figures a way to get it back. Yep. She, she always claws back from drive up town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So you know, there's some banter between Kelly and Bud. I don't have the job yet, so celebrating would be a bit premature. You see, the bank president is flying all the way from Japan to have dinner at my house tonight. Now, once he approves of me, the job is as good as mine. Oh, I love this show. That Urkel. <laughs> what an actor. <laughs> see, bud, I am not alone. No, no. As long as there's a sailor and an ice cream cone, you'll never be alone. <laughs> But Marcy has a very interesting request of the Bundys. So, Al, um, the reason that I'm here is that I need your help with just one little thing to make tonight's dinner perfect. I need you to leave the neighborhood. <laughs> you see, I don't want my boss to be repulsed by you and your children. No offense. None taken. So you'll do it? I meant none taken Yes. <laughs> All right, Al. What's your price? One night, all expenses paid in a Howard Bowman's motor lodge. Uh, ooh, hobos. <laughs> Where every bed is shaped like a boxcar. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or so I hear from my... My slutty friends who go there all the time, but... Not me. We also want passes to The Hobo's Friday's All-You-Can-Eat Clam Buffet. <laughs> Ow, you drive a hard bargain. And a rusty Dodge. But I think I can spring for five more dollars. Live it up! So she wants them to leave the neighborhood so that her boss won't be repulsed by him and his children. No offense. Yeah. I, I mean, if yeah. I were in her shoes and I had a neighbor like that, I'd probably be like, yes, please leave. Please get out. Please leave the neighborhood. I'd be just like her. And what I like is that Alan and the kids are just like, you know, we, we understand. It's, it's okay. We understand. They're not like, what do you mean? What do you mean, person? Al talks about 
getting a one night all expenses paid in a Howard Bowman's motor lodge. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a a spoof on uh, Howard Johnson's. Every day at Howard Johnson's, you get the freshest, tastiest clams in all the ocean. But first, we have to get the clams. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the Howard Johnson's Navy. George Jacoma, Captain. Andy Boncher, Netman First Class. Alan Kupchik, Gaffer. Dominic Bruno, Clam Digger JG. These men, these ships, are out day and night, in calm and storm, hired by Howard Johnson's to bring to you the freshest, tastiest clams in all the ocean. Who in America selects tender, sweet clams from five different fleets? Where do you go to get what you like best to eat? Only under the orange roof. Only at Howard Johnson's. Because clam lovers, Howard Johnson's loves you. Howard Bowman's takeoff on Howard Johnson's, which was nicknamed Hojo, is that a hobo? which is once a um, pretty pretty large chain of restaurants and motels, motor courts, as they were called back then. It was sort of pioneering, actually. It was one of the first, like, fast, casual, sit-down restaurants, uh, very uniform. I remember uh, it was famous for their taffy. For some reason, they had a huge display of saltwater taffy near the cast registers. It had a country atmosphere, you know, a little upscale Cracker Barrel kind of look, and also orange roofs. The uh, restaurants and the hotels, if they were able to sustain them, were famous for their bright orange roofs. Went to one many times as a kid in Yonkers. And also, if you ever watched a Mad Men episode, in season, a season five Mad Men episode from 2012 called Far Away Places, a lot of scenes in it take place in a be created Howard Johnson's on a highway in upstate New York. Uh, they even had a little cafe in Times Square until 2004 or so. I used to walk by it all the time. It was on 46 and Broadway with the famous orange sign. However, I never actually stayed stayed at the motel part, but as far as I know, the beds were not shaped like a boxcar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the clam buffet is a takeoff, and one of the most famous dishes, was, which was clam strips, which is uh, fried clams, like long strips of fried clams. Very good. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. There's one uh, Howard Johnson restaurant left, and that's in Lake George. Uh, I've been there probably about maybe five, six years ago. Oh. So that's the only one that's left. Now, it's interesting. They called it Hobos instead of Hojos. I guess maybe just because they didn't want to maybe pay a a royalty in 1996. But, you know, so Hobos were like a term that was used in the 1930s for like guys who were like in these, you know, during the Great Depression who were like traveling around the countries like they were homeless. Please tell me where have all And they traveled around in boxcars, like sort of like where the ter- like the boxcar Willie name comes from. So that's why Kelly says, you know, where every room is shaped like a boxcar. Mm-hmm. So so that that was the uh, pun on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if everyone would get that if they weren't familiar with ho- hobos or hojos. If I'm not mistaken. I think there's a Howard Johnson Hotel 
just north of me. Uh, the the hotels are still around, right? Correct. Yeah, yes. there's a. There, I'm pretty sure there's a hotel. Uh, it's like, it's in kind of a weird location, and it's a hotel that I feel like, I don't want to say it's like, I, I, I don't. <laughs> it's like it's a step up from like Motel Six and like uh, Super Eight and stuff, but it's like I don't know. It's a motel that's changed names like ten times. I think there was someone that was killed there years ago. And so it's like <laughs> it's like not the nicest. Like I don't want to sound snooty or anything, but it's not it's not the nicest hotel. But I do from the outside, it looks like it would be nicer than like a Super Eight or a Motel Six, though. I'll say that. So it's got. That so there's there. no like chalk outlines of bodies on the. Yeah, ground. yeah. I mean, it's not. I mean, look, it's like it looks like a like a hotel where you'd stay. Like if you're if you can't really afford a Marriott or a Hilton, but it definitely looks nicer than like a Motel 6 or a Red Roof Inn or a Super 8 or something like that. So, <laughs> Right. When you stay at a big, fancy hotel, you pay for a lot more than your room. You don't need a fancy hotel to get a big, comfortable room. You can get one at Howard Johnson's, along with a big bathroom, an oversized bed, and a lot of personal comforts to make you feel good, all at a sensible price. At Howard Johnson's, we don't care about the fanfare. We care about the things that count most. I think the point in the show is that to the Bundys, it looks like a plaza. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, to the Bundys, it's like, it's a Ritz-Carlton. They're like... <laughs> They're living high on the hog, man. <laughs> exactly. So, so An- Annabelle, did, did they ever make it down under? Nope. Well, not if it did, it's certainly not in, in my neck of the woods. But, yeah, because I only know about Howard Johnson from American TV shows. So this, for example, and, you know, back in season two when uh, Poppy's by the tree, when they're, they're going to stop at Howard Johnson's for Pez. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they had that little camera right. Yeah, in the front of all, all the restaurants. So that's my education, basically. <laughs> okay, well, you're not missing much. Uh, I, I, will, I will say they were more popular probably in the 60s and 70s. Totally. You know, I, th- I think by the 80s, you know, it sort of got a little ratty. I remember them as kids, but not that, you know, I traveled much outside the New York City area. But they had, dis- you know, they were pretty much disappearing in the 90s. And like I said, I mean, I was surprised to see one. I was in Lake George. Man, you know what? It was probably like 2012 or 2013. Hmm. And then when I did the notes for this, I just saw like that was the only one left as of 2018. It was just that one restaurant there. I'm like, wow. (laughs) Uh, But I do remember seeing, I think it was one or two on Long Island. So, yeah. And it looks like Marcy gave him like 20 bucks, right? I mean, the Bundys are going like to an all-you-can-eat all buffet for 20 bucks. <laughs> I mean, like, that's what it looks like, you know? I mean, she said that she's bringing an extra five bucks for the buffet, right? So I don't think it was costing that much. I like, well, do you notice Marcy just casually mentions that Al drives a hard bargain and a rusty Dodge? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we have to get the dodge in our minds because we actually never see it this episode. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's a setup for sort of the plot of this episode, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, in the next scene, we open up in the Darcy house. (laughs) So, Mr. Shimakawa, did you like the sushi? It was wonderful, thank you. (laughs) How original, serving sushi to a Japanese man in America. 
It's like Gilligan getting off the island and being offered a coconut. <laughs> so, Annabelle, I mean, uh, you know, not to put you on the spot, but when was the last time we saw the Darcy house? It's been a while, right? Well, we saw it in The Agony in the Extra Sea, which was actually produced right before this episode, but aired... 1017, I think. I think it's the 17th episode, but it was made the 19th, and this is the 20th. So there's two episodes in a row that we've seen their house, but before that, I remember discussing that we haven't actually seen their house for a little while. So it's it's making up for it in this last couple of episodes. Right. And in terms of the release order, actually, Agony and the Extra C was three weeks yes. ago. So in terms of uh, airing order, this is that. But yeah, but I mean, we don't see the, the Darcy house very often. So it is a treat when we do see it. I, I thought it was kind of funny that obviously the set, I mean, the set designers slash the Darcy's haven't like done anything to the place since 1987, it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plus, plus the whitewashed brick, because we have preppy for it. It has a, that like light green scheme that hasn't been around since like, like 1992 or so. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I'll say is, like, when you look at that set, I mean, they they were really in on the joke there. I mean, yes. I, I, in, in 2022, we talk a lot about uh, cultural sensitivity, which was very non-existent back in uh, the mid-90s. Uh, you know, so, I mean, like, this this whole setup, I mean, I think it would just be, like, I think a modern-day person looking at this would just say, like, how wrong it was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, sort of the... Um, um, what do you call them? The, uh, uh, not curtains. Uh, screens. Uh, the, the, uh, the screens, right. That's right. Shoji screens, yeah. Right. I mean, all around and, you know, Marcy's in the, the kimono and. <laughs> I, I don't have to say, actually, I, I, thought, I thought the kimono looked very nice on Marcy. Is it right yeah. for her? Oh, yeah. right call for her. And she has the right kind of body for it. She's kind of uh, boyish, you know, which is also. <laughs> Well, you know, Mr. Miyagi, uh, I, I call I still call him Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid, but he, you know what I'm talking about. He, he hits the nail on the head here when he says how patronizing, and and I, I know exactly what he's talking about. It's like when I go, if, if I'm on, if I'm in Tokyo, for example, on a on a work trip, I don't go try to find a cheeseburger. <laughs> I can find cheeseburgers here in the U.S. I go to try to find some good uh, Japanese ramen while I'm there. You know. <laughs> Or, you know, you don't go to Italy and try to find a cheeseburger. You, you go get some Italian food, you know, so on and so forth. He doesn't want to drink tea and stuff while he's here. He wants he wants some some whiskey or a Domino's pizza, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Well, you know, I thought it was funny because, you know, the Bundys are, of course, the kind of people who would go, who would go to Italy and look for a McDonald's. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, they sure would, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. Quick, get the camera. That's yep. right. That's right. <laughs> now, I mean, so let let's talk about uh, Mr. Shimakawa, who's played by Pat Morita. The great Pat Morita. You know, what are some of your reminiscences on him? Well, well, let's see. I know that he he's a very interesting guy. Born in California, has a severe illness as a child. So as soon as he got out of the hospital, he was sent to the internment camp. So he, so like George Decay, he lives through the internment camps being relocated from California to, I think, Arizona. He took the name Pat from a, uh, a joke that a priest told him when he was in the hospital that, you know, if he was Catholic, he, I'm going to call you Patrick Aloysius because his name was uh, Nora, I think it's uh, Nora Buki. Noriyuki. Noriyuki, Noriyuki, yes. So when he started his professional career, he had a, you know, he had a wife and family and a regular middle-class life. In his late 30s, he decided to, he got, got tired of it and decided to strike out acting 
and it did extremely well. And he took the name Pat in honor of the priest. And I remember him, of course, from Happy Days when I was a little kid. He was on Happy Days all the time, which was very nice. And it was nice to see, you know, he was, he would do the occasional, like, stereotypical thing. But he was just another American entrepreneur who happened to be Japanese. And that was a breakthrough back then, you know, in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And I also remember a little show um, after Happy Days called Blensky's Beauties, which for some reason I was really taken with as like like an eight-year-old, even though it was kind of, most of it went over my head. But it was really great. It had Pat, Nancy Walker who was like, kind of like a, a Joan Rivers type, Scott Bio, and um, Eddie Mecca, who passed away last November. So it was like a real 70s thing. Oh, yes, and Karen Kay, who, of course, will go on to star in It's Your Move. So there's always, there's always an MWC connection. You know, 70s and 80s television, six degrees of Karen Kay is not very not a very long distance to go for, many, for anybody. So, um, and of course, most people know from The Karate Kid, he kept on working until his death in 2005 and even made some some, uh, posthumous appearances uh, as a voice actor. So he's very well remembered. I I said, I I wish we had seen him like enter because I'm sure he got huge entrance applause when he came in. This is only few years after, this is only a few years after Karate Kid. So everyone knew, you know, everyone knew who he was. Oh yeah, he was he was huge. I mean, I, I as a kid, I loved that movie, and I had the Nintendo game Karate Kid, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm pretty sure I'm I'm trying to scrape my you know the, my, the cobwebs in my memory here, but I, I want to say it actually had his voice in the game, the Karate Kid game, which you know for a for a regular Nintendo game was a pretty big deal, <laughs> and it had his image on the front of it too, so it was pretty cool. I mean, I remember him, I mean, not just from the Karate Kid, but he played, he, one of his characters was Lamont Sanford's friends on Sanford and Son, Achu. And this is uh, mid-season, middle of uh, the run of of Sanford and Son. And also, I remember, uh, Carolyn, you might remember this better than me, but I do remember reruns of this, Mr. T and Tina. Oh, yes, yes, uh, yes. uh, That was his um, starring series, didn't last. He had two starring series. It was like one, one of the first Asian Asian Americans to have their own um, Beatle leader of a series. Yeah, I remember Mr. T and Tina. The other oh, one's yeah. called O'Hara, but uh, I don't remember watching that. That yeah. says it's from 1987 to 1988. Mm-hmm. And we also have another Married with Children connection with uh, <laughs> Pat Morita. Yeah, Carolyn, I was going to ask you if um, if you remember if Pat Morita and Ted McGinley actually crossed paths in Happy Days because. Ted joined Happy Days for the last three seasons. He joined in 1982, but I think Arnold left after 83. So do you remember them actually sharing any scenes together? I do not remember, sorry. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm struggling because I've seen most of Ted's episodes, but I'm struggling to picture them in a scene together. That's the problem. Yeah, well, I was a more casual watcher back then because mm. I was in high school. And remember, if you, if you missed the show, you missed the show. That was it. <laughs> yeah. so you had to wait until September for reruns. Yeah, well, I mean, the story of Pat Morita on Happy Days, as I recall, is, you know, he was a minor character in the early seasons, and he was the titular Arnold of Arnold's, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Pat Morita went off to do some other work, uh, so he left the show. And then um, Al uh, Molinaro took over as Al Del Vecchio, as the guy who's running, you know, the you know the diner, mm-hmm. Arnold's, right? Uh, but then, uh, then Al Molinaro left... And he was a guest star in seasons 10 and 11. And um, I'm actually just looking this up just to verify your question. Uh, According to this, Pat Morita was in seasons 10 and 11. He was a guest star in a few of them. So it's very possible that they did cross paths on screen. Yeah, I like to think that they do because that makes 
this episode here a little little cooler. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, one thing that Jefferson does, uh, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Jefferson they start talking about the Joy Luck Club, he says, "Oh, you know," and uh, Jefferson starts to move his hands like making a gesture, and I'm trying to think is like was he trying to do like a like a karate like gesture? a karate kid kid like a karate kid gesture yeah. or something like that? But it was very awkward. But when you see it on screen, it's like, okay, like what, what was the purpose of this? I, I, have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts about Ted's performance in this episode, but we'll get into it later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I find the Japanese culture to be fascinating. I, I mean, the art, the literature, I, I, I just love the Joy Luck Club. <laughs> that was Chinese. <laughs> With the Kama Sutra. <laughs> that is Indian. In my country, this man would be filling water glasses at Denny's. Now, these jokes about, you know, how Jefferson keeps uh, messing up, like where, <laughs> you know, m- messing up Japan and China and India. I thought that was hysterical. I mean, because my... Uh, the my favorite line I think of this whole of this whole episode was in my country this man would be filling water glasses at Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Right. yep. That's right. Yeah. And you have to you have to wonder this this is the big international spy. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, will, I will say I will say one thing is that Steve would have all Steve would um he'd have all the answers right but he would also like veto half of the funny stuff in this episode. He would not go that far. So I really appreciate Jefferson being in this one. Yeah. You're going to laugh at this, all of you. You know, so I figured in researching this, I'm like, are there any Denny's in Japan? (laughs) And the answer is yes. Believe it or not, at least modern day today, uh, there are uh, at least like about half a dozen, um, not too far from Tokyo, like within within Tokyo and its... uh, It's suburbs, so I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> it's a mixture of American and Japanese cuisine, as one would think, right? Damn, I'm gonna have to try that out uh, next time I, if well, if Asia ever opens again for our for my travels, <laughs> I'll have to definitely try that out. Yeah, yeah, Annabelle. Right, right now, even we're having trouble even getting into Canada, us Americans. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, we can't even get to in, into New Zealand. So. <laughs> oh, that, 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 that's, that's much worse, actually. But yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so at, at this point, Mr. Shimakawa doesn't really talk much. Like, you just hear his inner dialogue. And I think that's like, that's what, to me, made the episode. Right? Oh, yeah. Th- this is one of the funniest stretches of the episode to me. <laughs> I mean, even though it's pre recorded, he gets the timing exactly right. His facial expressions. That's that's everything. I, obviously, the audience can hear it because they're laughing along with them. So, <laughs> and by the way, Luigi, I just watched the scene, the the hand gesture you were talking about. It totally looked like they told Jefferson to do some sort of karate type <laughs> hand gesture with his hands or something. I totally think that's what they're going for. Because at this time, that you mean, you know, mainstream America in, at this point in the mid '90s would recognize him for from Karate Kid. So, but I guess it didn't get a laugh. But yeah, you know, and I'll tell you, like that's happened to me before. Like, I mean, like for example, so you know, I'm, a, I'm obviously Italian American. Uh, you know, I've I've like been invited to places, and it's like you know, like they almost go out of their way to like give me Italian food, and they'll say it's like, oh look, this is, <laughs> you know, it's like we like we have this thing, and it's you know, look, it's Italian, and I'm like. Yeah, 
like I, I, I'm like I'm in the South. I want some ribs. You know? yeah. I want some ribs, <laughs> some barbecue, some Mexican food. <laughs> yeah, and actually, you know what? I have a fun. I have a very funny story for for all of you and for our listeners. So, uh, one of my good friends uh, moved to Georgia, like at the end of high school. So I went to go visit him a few years ago in one of the suburbs of Atlanta. So we met up, and he goes to me. He's like, "Hey, Luigi, like you're here. Like, you know, what do you want to do?" And I'm like, "Well, you know." I mean, we're in the South. I'm in the South. It's like, I'd love to have some barbecue. And we just so happen to be in this neighborhood. Like we, we pull up Yelp on the phone and we're looking for barbecue places. And it just so happened we were in a section, a suburb of Atlanta where it was all Korean. So there were like dozens of Korean barbecue places. But all I was looking for was like Southern barbecue. <laughs> and... You know, the irony is that, you know, he and I had both lived in Flushing, Queens, and there's like a ton of Korean barbecue places. I know plenty of them. I've had it plenty of times. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I'm just like struggling. And, you know, I, I told the story to someone I work with who's Korean. It's like, well, what? You, you don't like Korean barbecue? I was like, listen, if I want Korean barbecue, I could go to my mother's house and just walk a few blocks and I'll get it. I mean, I'm not going to Atlanta, you know, to have Korean barbecue. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I, I get that sentiment, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, like he's saying, I mean, although he says that if it was Domino's, like he, he'd kill for a pizza. I wouldn't eat Domino's though, right, Carolyn? No, no, no. I mean, the, the poor guy doesn't know good pizza. I mean, they probably put like, corn or something on in Japan, like in England. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing that I will point out that I found in my travels overseas is these American chains like uh, Domino's and Pizza Hut are way different. The business model is way different. I, I've gone to a Pizza Hut overseas before, and it's almost like a, a, I mean, it's a sit-down restaurant. Like, you can order steaks, you can order porterhouses, T-bones. I mean, it's like... Now of course they they now they serve pizzas too, but I mean it's almost like the type of place where you would have like a sit down dinner and dress up to go eat. <laughs> so, from a Japanese person's standpoint, when he thinks uh, Domino's, he would probably be very disappointed if he ate at the Domino's here in the U.S. <laughs> He'd be like, "What is this?" <laughs> but Chris, you know that's very common because what happens is like what we consider like very common in the U.S. Uh-huh. is can be very upscale. Especially like when a chain opens up in a country that hasn't been there before, yeah. you know, you'll find that it'll be with as, as, as something as lowly as McDonald's, for example. Yep. It, it's just, it's a very different experience depending on the country you go to. Yep. But I will tell you as a New York City Italian, I will never step foot in a Domino's or a pizza. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I no, as, 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 an, as an Irish American, I know better too. <laughs> well, my good thing with being Irish is that no one tries to impress us with their own food. No one's like, well, shepherd's pie for you. That does not happen. <laughs> we, we, are, we are known for many things, but the food, you know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the next time I go to America, if I can never get there ever again, I want to go to an outback Australian-themed restaurant. Because I've had Australian friends go to one, and the menus are hilarious. I, I can't think of specifics at the moment, but, yeah, it was just... It's so wrong. <laughs> I'll I'll take a picture of one next time. Yes, I'm in one, uh, if, for you, if anybody goes to one, yeah. <laughs> send well, me dude, the there's, menu because I need not to laugh. For me, so. <laughs> we don't don't lot up here, but you know, but I'll I'll see what I I'll see if I, if I pass by, I'll let you know. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, now that we've finished with dinner, can I offer you some? Let me guess, tea. 
Tea? <laughs> Would you like something in it? Milk? Sugar? Whiskey. <laughs> now, who could that be? Please, let it be Domino's. I kill for the pizza. Look, honey, it's our favorite neighbors, the Bundys. <laughs> Kelly? <laughs> Mr. Shimakawa, this is Al Bundy, an Acura salesman. <laughs> Peggy, his wife, a homemaker. <laughs> their son, Bud, who's home from medical school. <laughs> and their daughter, Kelly, who's a violin prodigy. Uh, this isn't too patronizing. I just wanted to thank you again, Marcy-san, for the home loan you got for us. <laughs> She is truly the Japanese businessman's best friend. Well, thanks, Bundys, for stopping by. All right, there's a knock on the door, which Marcy opens, and we have some faux Bundys walk in. Cringe, cringe, cringe. <laughs> I, mean, I know we're supposed to be laughing at Marcy and not, not those folks, but... <laughs> I just thought that that was, I mean, it's so funny, it's so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, 2022, it is, it is so wrong. Yeah, it's so it's wrong so and ridiculous. Funny. I actually laughed, though, because it was so over the top. Like, Yeah, because we're no laughing at how wrong it is. This. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. And there's no way this guy would believe this, by the way. He's like, okay, we got a, a Caucasian couple wearing kimonos, and they just, <laughs> by pure coincidence, they live next door to a Japanese, a perfect Japanese family. <laughs> who has a prodigy violin player as a daughter and a medical school son. <laughs> I mean, it's like, there's no way a bank president from Jap Japan would believe this. <laughs> yeah, so... Like, <laughs> so the, the Japanese Al Bundy is an accurate salesman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think I think the double joke there is that Acura is actually a division of Honda. It's like the, it's like the upscale luxury division of Honda. Mm. Right. In the U.S. since 1986. So there's another little in-joke there because I mean, we all know how Marcy, Marcy is a snob about her cars. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Darcy, I had a wonderful time, but I must really be going to a liquor store. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you can't go yet. The best is just ahead. Oh, good. They're going to hang themselves. <laughs> Mr. Shimakawa gets up because he wants to leave. <laughs> and he says, the, you know, Marcy says, the best is yet ahead. And he says, oh, good, they're going to hang themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Now, I don't understand why Marcy didn't have some sake ready for him. Yeah. Probably, probably served the wrong way and everything, like cold or something, or something bad like that. But because, because, folks, do we remember the first time that Marcy had a career meeting with Japanese folks in her house. Annabelle Wood, right? The Takahashi Brothers, season one. Johnny Be Gone. Oh, right. Yep. Oh, yeah, Johnny Be Gone. Yeah, now we never saw them. But, <laughs> but, but, but she, she was serving like what looked like a fairly fairly ordinary fish dish, fancy uh, salmon dinner to them, so. Yeah, and then Steve got into the sake. <laughs> that's right, Steve into the sake, that's right, and Marcy's dress shrunk, but she got the job. <laughs> he wrote a haiku, as I recall, yeah. right? <laughs> I wrote a haiku. I 
love that line. I wrote a haiku. <laughs> Steve, where have you been? Oh, I got halfway out the back door and Mr. Takahashi said, hey, where you go? So I couldn't just leave. We started talking baseball and then we got into the sake. I wrote a haiku. <laughs> Now, you know, that is a, that's actually a stereotype because uh, typically you know, what they say is, you know, Japanese businessmen are like heavy drinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so uh, and there's also when we get to the nudie bar, there's another stereotype we could talk about. But, uh, you know, I mean, they're laying it on thick. Yeah. Right. I mean, and Pat and Pat Morita's in for the joke as well. Yeah. He's mentioned alcohol at least twice in this scene. <laughs> so now we go to another stereotype, uh, which is karaoke. Oh no, I'm going to hang myself. I could forget. <laughs> I, I, I got to admit, I totally did not know that stereotype. Like, I mean, I, I knew it now because I researched, you know, I read the notes and everything, but I totally did not know that Japanese people like karaoke. Like, <laughs> I, I believe the word is Japanese. Oh, I, I, I guess I never thought Japanese, about it. I mean, because right? that's very popular everywhere, I thought. I mean, I mean, heck, every, like, Country redneck bar in the South has has uh, karaoke. <laughs> I always thought that was just something that everybody liked, honestly. <laughs> it means... I think it is now, but it definitely is a Japanese word. Yeah, yeah. doesn't so it funny. mean empty orchestra? Oh, that's right, yeah. Okay, yes. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I totally did not know that until I was researching this episode. <laughs> I was about to say empty hand, but that's karate. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So the first song up is Fame. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm wondering, is this like, you know, sort of like a, like Married with Children saying, like, we hate these songs, so these are the songs we're going to play? <laughs> <laughs> they must get overplayed at karaoke. <laughs> so Fame is a pop song written by Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford, released in 1980 that achieved chart success as a theme song to the Fame film and TV series. And the song was performed by Irene Cara, who played the role of Coco Hernandez in the original film. It was also her debut single as a recording artist, and the song won the Academy Award for the Best Original Song in 1980 and the Global Golden Globe Award the same year. In 2004, it finished at number 51 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Song Survey of the Top Tunes in American Cinema. I saw that countdown. We actually sang that in high school. That the title song and I sang the Body Electric are very, very good, like high school choral songs. Very, very popular in America. Yeah. So, so we get a little bit more of uh, Mr. Shimakawa's uh, uh, inner dialogue as they're saying, "Remember, remember, remember." Because <laughs> if I, if I only I could forget. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and we learned that among her many talents, Amanda cannot sing. <laughs> yes. Or she's faking correct. it badly very well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now we hear the sound of the Dodge backfiring and Mr. Shimakawa's ears go up like a Doberman. Yeah. <laughs> the job is mine. I can feel it. 
What was that? Uh, uh, nothing. No, that was not nothing. That was a 1971 Dodge. <laughs> the one I need to complete my collection. Oh, you collect classic American cars? No, I collect classic American junk. <laughs> yes, I have a gremlin and a pesa, um, an old yellow school bus with no brakes or no seat belts. I have everything except that one. <laughs> oh, that is real junk. Mrs. Darcy, that car is very important to me. I must have it. I love his smile. He was so happy and excited, finally. Oh, yeah. Well, I like how he could tell the fact that it was a 1971 Dodge just by the sound of it. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> yeah, you know, and in fact, is, you know, he needs it to complete his collection. So according to him, he collects classic American junk. <laughs> so he has a gremlin, a pacer... An old yellow school bus with no brakes or seatbelts, right? So we would call that a cheap. We would call that a cheese bus, right? <laughs> I rode that bus. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Annabelle, you're familiar with a gremlin or pacer? I probably like. I, I think uh, even uh, Chris, you probably don't know what those look like. What gr- you talking about? Gremlins, like the the Gremlins movie? Yeah. No, no, an AMC <laughs> Gremlin. Oh, it's a car. Oh no, okay, yeah, that went right over my head. I was thinking. I was. I always thought that was. <laughs> Never mind. There's no telling what I thought. I thought we were talking about the gremlins, but <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what a gremlin vehicle looks like. No. One of the Treehouse of Horrors on the Simpsons, you know, there's a gremlin on the side of the bus and he looks out the window and it's Hans Molman driving his car. So I think a gremlin looks like that. That's that was ah, what, that's what I picture. <laughs> okay. That probably went right. I'm sure I probably saw that episode, but it went right over my head. But I, I rode a yellow school bus with no seatbelts, though. I got that going no. for me. <laughs> And, you know, both of those cars are AMCs, AMC cars uh, manufactured in the 70s. So the Gremlin and the Pacer, they, and actually they don't look very much different, quite frankly. That's funny. When, when this episode airs, we'll have to um, post a photo of a Gremlin and a Pacer down in the comments section so everybody can see. And everyone can laugh at me thinking I thought that it meant the Gremlin like the movie, you know, the movie, The Gremlins. <laughs> sure, sure, of course. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, um, okay, guys, you know, can, you know what a, you know, ever heard of the Pontiac Aztec? It was kind of like a Pontiac Aztec of its time. Just yes. an unsafe, hideous, inefficient. I mean, 70s cars in general in America, not, not the, not the, not the peak time for car builders. Yeah, and, you know, those were considered uh, the, uh, I guess they they were the Dodges. If I remember correctly, if you remember in the No Pot to Pizen episode, the pigeon, right? <laughs> the woman who played the pigeon. Uh, she talked about uh, Mel Pease having a, a Rambler, mm. right? It's another AMC car. I guess, yeah, and they all look very, very similar. I'm going to send you guys a link. Do you know um, there's an IMDb for cars in TV shows and movies? And, it, yeah, I'll send you the link. But it just reminded me that in season four, in Oh, What a Feeling, Al, two of the cars that Al drives up in, is an AMC Gremlin and an AMC Pacer. That's right. Yes, correct. He's pushing them in, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, they were much easier to push than the Dodge because they were like those were like the subcompact cars of the era. Oh yeah, sure was, huh? I remember that now. 
Yeah, like I'm a car head, so I, I, I know my cars, uh, particularly like of the 70s and earlier, pretty well. There were some great websites showing ugly cars and both the cars he mentioned. And, uh, and, and they also have the Ford, kind of like the Ford Pinto. They probably say the uh, Ford Pinto these days, too. So <laughs> yeah, that, that, list could be, that list could be updated anytime. All right. So Mr. Shimakawa looks out the window and he tells Marcy that he wants that car. So now Marcy has to go over to the Bundys to negotiate with Al. <laughs> so we open with Al and Bud sitting on the couch eating clams. <laughs> As Marcy leaves, Jefferson sings, I'm so excited. <laughs> well, don't you worry, Mr. Shimakawa. I'll take care of everything. And I'll even leave my Jefferson here to entertain you. <laughs> This whole episode, Ted McGinley was really into it. He gave us all. He's having so much fun. <laughs> he totally is. This is like Goofy Ted is his goofiest. I, I, I really appreciate that he went all out. Otherwise, it would have been un- unbearable. <laughs> hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if he has that karaoke machine in his house. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm So Excited is a song by the American vocal group The Pointer Sisters, jointly written and composed by the sisters in collaboration with Trevor Lawrence it was originally released in September 1982, reaching number 30 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. This was followed by a remixed re-release in July 1984, reaching number 9 on the Billboard Hot 100. And Billboard named the song number 23 on their list of 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. Some of our Saved by the Bell fans will know that song from a certain episode about, about pills, wasn't it? Yep. <laughs> With Elizabeth Berkeley. Yes. Call, right. Mm-hmm. So we find out that they got kicked out because uh, the sign clearly said all the clams you can eat and not all the clams you can eat right now. <laughs> <laughs> Clam me, bud. Hey. Here are the, uh, the rest of the hobo's clams from the trunk. <laughs> The corn's keeping warm in the muffler. <laughs> what are you people doing here? I bought you a room. They kicked us out. <laughs> and I have a good mind to sue them for false advertising. That sign clearly said all the clams you can eat, not all the clams you can eat right now. <laughs> you know, I actually, I, I'll tell you, like I have uh, one of my uncles actually got kicked out of an all-you-can-eat place once. Uh, you know, he showed up uh, with his brother from Italy. They started eating at lunch, and uh, they were still there at dinner time. So, <laughs> so, so, so I've had uh, some experience, or at least I've heard of stories of like, well, it's all about you know, <laughs> there is a limit to what all you can eat is, right? You can't show up and just stay there and eat all day. You know, there actually was a story, and and I saw I saw there was a link here in the notes about a story about four or five years ago, but there was a, a more recent one. I, I want to say about six months ago about a guy that was kicked out of an all-you-can-eat restaurant, and I think he's actually suing them, <laughs> which is similar. There, there was actually a, a, a Simpsons episode about that where Homer gets kicked out of one and he sues them, but like this is in real life. Like I'll, uh, I'll attach the story on the, in the podcast episode, but there's legit a guy suing a restaurant because they kicked him out. 
<laughs> yeah, it seems to happen quite a bit. <laughs> and he claimed, hey, it says on the sign, all you can eat. I didn't have all I could eat. <laughs> so Chris mentioned this article. I told you a story of my uncle. So this was from 2017. Uh, a Massachusetts man sued the Golden Corral Corporation for being kicked out of an establishment for eating 50 pounds of food at an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> and according to this, he was there for seven hours. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd say my uncle was very comparable. Uh, <laughs> so, not not un, not unheard of. I, I feel for restaurant owners; they just have to deal with so much as it is, and then you have and then you might have some a situation like that. But <laughs> like, how would you manage that? Like, I'd hate to I'd hate to be the one that has to tell someone, "Sorry, you've been here for six hours eating." <laughs> there is a limit, you know. <laughs> You know, there's a great stand-up comedian who passed away. If you guys have ever heard uh, John Panette and his comedy. Uh, so one of them is like uh, around the world in 80 buffets or something like that. <laughs> you know, so he's, you know, he's a fat guy and he goes around and, you know, he talks about eating at, you know, buffets of different nations of the world. Right. So, <laughs> again, like he passed away. Uh, that's some pretty good uh, comedy, but you should check him out. Uh, one of my favorite ones is him like at an Italian buffet. Right. You know, he said that he's Irish and French, but his stomach is Italian, as he <laughs> describes himself, right? <laughs> That's great. So how are things going with your boss? Oh, great, great, just great. Till you three mothred on home. <laughs> now, Marcy says this line. Bud says, how are things going with your boss? And she says, oh, great. Till you three mothred on home. <laughs> so mothra is a fictional monster, or kaiju, that first appeared in the 1961 film Mothra, produced and distributed by Toho Studios. And Mothra has appeared in several Toho Tokusatsu films, most often as a recurring character in the Godzilla franchise. She is typically portrayed as a colossal sentient larva, caterpillar, or imago, moth, accompanied by two miniature female humanoids speaking on her behalf. Unlike other Toho monsters, Mothra is a largely heroic character, having been variously portrayed as a protector of her own island culture, the Earth and Japan. Though identified as a kind of moth, the character's design incorporates elements more frequently associated with butterflies and has caddisfly-like mandibles rather than proboscis. The character is often depicted hatching offspring, in some cases twins, when approaching death, a nod to the samsara doctrine of numerous Indian religions. And apologies for anything mispronounced there. A remote Pacific island, where an expedition of world-famous scientists investigate incredible rumors of its fantastic mysteries and discover barren volcanic mountains surrounding strange green valleys. Mammoth caves that breed giant mutations. Vampire plants that devour humans. But most astounding of all, the tiniest women in all creation. Sacred beauties of a lost tribe which worships a monstrous creature. What is 
the secret of Mothra? What is the bizarre spell that awakens Mothra? As these doll-sized girls call to the super god from captivity. Mothra! Mothra, whose revenge is more devastating than any man-made weapon. Mothra, who defies warplanes. Wrecks ocean liners. Smashes dams and bridges. Mothra, creating hurricanes. Mothra, enveloped in a shell that no human force can penetrate. indestructible, all-powerful, indescribable. What kind of creature is this god monster, Mothra? Al gets offended when Marcy says that he doesn't have any junk cards. All he has is the dodge. As it turns out, Mr. Shimakawa collects junk cars and he wants to buy yours. I don't have any junk cars. All I have is a dodge. <laughs> you little mean. Oh, come on, Al. He'll probably offer you twice what it's worth. I mean, you might even get $50. Well, Marcy, me and that dodge have been together a long time. Yeah, well, so have you and your hair, but you got rid of that. Way to bargain, Mars. <laughs> I love that car more than anything that I have. <laughs> Dad, what about us? You need a Q-tip? As soon as he realizes that, what she's talking about, his Al's face just goes like, just falls. Mm. I love that look. Boy, I think when, in throughout that whole exchange, my favorite line is, you know, I love that car more than anything else I have. And Bud says, Dad, what about us? He's like, do you need a Q-tip? Screams at him. See, that, that, that's the kind of writing that I appreciate, right? <laughs> Marcy, like I said before, I'm not selling that car. Especially not to some Japanese bigwig who gets rich by flooding our market with fuel-efficient, affordable cars that don't fold up like a tin can on a front-end collision, like that's important. And all the while, they're buying up all our American classics. Please, Al. My job is on the line. Oh, well, that changes nothing. Marcy, I'm not selling that car to your boss. That car was born a Bundy. By God, it'll die a Bundy. I want to say, point this out. This is a little anachronistic, you know, so uh, sorry for the SAT word. You know, in other words, out of time. You know, I would say that during the 1980s, there was a, there was this thought that eventually the Japanese would take over. It's like, you know, the, their car, the, Japanese cars had become very popular in the U.S. Uh, Japanese corporations bought up a lot of land. I, I, if I remember correctly, I think they even bought like Rockefeller Center. They, they, they did, yes, in 1989. 
and like it was this thought that you know the the 21st century would be the Japanese century because you know they had they were great at manufacturing things they made great products great electronics etc and uh, America would see its decline but uh, by the early 90s by like 1990 1991 like the Japanese economy sort of imploded and it's never really recovered believe it or not in the last 30 years by 1996 like I think people had forgotten about that so I was just surprised, like, you know, like a lot of the jokes that they have about like sort of the jokes almost going to the fact that it's like, well, the Japanese are going to take over. And I feel like even when I watched this episode 1996, I was like, like those days are over already. You yeah. know, I remember there were like movies like in the 80s. Remember, like Michael Keaton did this one movie about like a car company. I would say, I'd say like they were making like these Japanese cars. And the question was whether they can make them as well as in Japan. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Silence. Well, I, I don't, of course, but I will say that um, every car I've ever owned has been a Japanese vehicle. <laughs> my first car was a Toyota, and my second car was a Honda, and my current car, the one I want on The Price is Right, is a Nissan. So every car I've ever driven is a pretty much a Japanese car. So I, I love them. I got no problems with them. <laughs> the movie was, that I'm referring to was called Gung Ho. Oh, oh, yeah. It, it, was, it, was, it was released in Australia as Working Class Man. And it was directed by Ron Howard. Yeah. It was uh, uh, Gary Watanabe, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it in years, but. Was, well, he was one of the. Yes, it was. Yes, yes, I see yeah, that. Yes. He was hilarious. Yes. He was a. Uh, it was a, basically a fish out of water comedy about some. Um, about some Japanese uh, managers who were sent, sent to America to uh, run, a, run a factory in the Japanese style that they'd taken over. And cultural, cultural classes, misunderstandings and such. But, yeah, I, I remember that time pretty vividly because I was starting my career as a business writer. And, uh, yeah, the, you know, it was, I mean, people in the know knew that it, could, it was not sustainable. But Columbia Pictures was purchased. Um, Rockefeller Center, as I mentioned, by Mitsubishi Estate for $1.4 But by the early 90s, yes, it had definitely blown up. The uh, Japanese stock market crashed and, it crashed and then there was a huge real estate recession in the early 90s. Also, which uh, which got rid of a lot of the holdings that they'd had, the Rockefellers brought back um, Rockefeller Center from Mitsubishi. So, yeah, in the popular mind, people like Al, there was still a lot of a lot of resentment, a lot of um, yeah. I wish I could say it was totally free of racism. You know, it was it was mostly it wasn't you know it wasn't automatically racist, but there was there was some there was some clashes there as well. It was sort of an idea that America had peaked. And foreigners were coming in and buying buying stuff because we were too weak to resist that sort of thing, and so I can understand why that you know why they would um, they would tap into that vein. Although again, by '96, you, you know, Luigi's right; it was pretty obsolete. But having lived through it and everything, um, it was a uh, it was a problem. People would smash Japanese cars in um, in parking lots and such. People got you know people would go on strike against Japanese companies coming in and such. So it was a uh, you know, those classes were a lot fresher back then, like 25 years ago than they are now. It's sort of like, um, I mean, I guess if you were to try to <clears throat> transpose that to like a modern day thing, uh, sort of like China in a way. You know, I see a lot of people posting online, you know, don't buy from China, buy American, you know, don't do this from China, buy American, you know. So I guess that's sort of like modern day it would be with China instead of Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 Japan Japan was it's democracy. It was much much higher profile. It wasn't it wasn't there was nothing secretive about it. 
So yeah. I think that, you know, yeah, that's I think that's true. Kind of exaggerated it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, you know, sort of in the 1950s and 60s, uh, Japan was building up its uh, manufacturing industry after World War II. So all the cheap stuff that came into the U.S. at that time was from Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a joke in Back to the Future. It's like, you know, Doc says, uh, you know, oh, no wonder the circuit failed. It says made in Japan because at that point in the 50s and 60s, it was cheap. But by the 80s, you know, Japan had like sort of the best microchips. You know, we sort of forget about that because it's not there. And then I'd say by the, during the 70s and 80s, it had shifted from Japan to Taiwan. Because mm-hmm. if you remember, like everything said like made in Taiwan. And it really wasn't until the 90s that you started to see the label made in China. And that's really what it's been for the last 30 years. Yeah. And Korea was in there too. Correct. Yes, that's right. That was another place when I was a kid was a dictatorship. <laughs> it's amazing how many more dictators there were back then when I was a little kid. <laughs> All right. So Al declares that the Dodge was born a Bundy and it will die a Bundy. <laughs> so Marcy goes back to her living room and uh, Jefferson singing, do you really want to hurt me? <laughs> More than life itself. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I just love how Pat Morita picks up that knife. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And he just says, more than life itself. (laughs) So, uh, So, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me is a song written and performed by English New Wave Band Culture Club. Released as a single in September 1982 from the group's platinum-selling debut album, Kissing to be Clever, it was the band's first UK number one hit. In the United States, the single was released in 1982 and also became a hit, reaching number two for three weeks. And one thing about that is that Jefferson, in karaoke, is supposed to let the other guy have a turn. (laughs) (laughs) Not the best host there. Oh. Mrs. Darcy, so did you get my dodge? You know, his price was too high. Isn't that just like the poor, always trying to take advantage of the rich? God, I hate them. So I tell you what we're going to do. Tomorrow, I'm going to take you down to a dealership, and we're going to get you a better one. Do you not realize how rare those dodges are today? I mean, half of them were recalled. The other half dissolved in the rain. <laughs> this may be the only one left. Well, Mr. Shimakawa, I, I just don't think he wants to sell. Bottom line, Miss Darcy, you will get me that dodge or I will get me a new vice president for my bank. I think I love you, so what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that I'm not sure of. Mr. Shimokawa sort of lays out the, he gives Marcy the bottom line, right? (laughs) That he wants this Dodge. (laughs) Every man has a price. And if she wants to get this promotion, she has to get the Dodge. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have the last song that Jefferson karaoke's, (laughs) which is, I think I love you. (laughs) (laughs) 
can imagine a worse song to sing to your potential boss, and I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this whole this whole scenario is totally outlandish. I mean, can you imagine your boss telling you, in order to get a promotion, you're going to have to do this personal deal for me, get this vehicle for me? <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah. I do have to say, I do have to say, the, the moral pendulum is swinging back toward Marcy at this point. Yeah. <laughs> this is like totally outlandish. As much as the show has it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so it's interesting. The last three songs were within two years of each other in the 1980s. Mm. So I think "I Love You" went back to 1970. So it's a song by Tony uh, Romeo or Romeo, written as a debut single for the fictional musical TV family, The Partridge Family, released in August 1970, a month prior to the debut of the sitcom. Uh, the single topped Billboard's Hot 100 for three weeks in November and December of 1970 and was certified by NARM as the best-selling single of 1970. And, of course, we had Danny Bataducci on, uh, on the show. Uh, and uh, who was the guy who drove the bus? Ruben Kincaid. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Do you notice Jefferson moonwalks at the end of the scene? <laughs> Yes, yes, he's all over the place. Ed is just having a great time, and he doesn't get a chance to shine yeah. as should. Yeah, yeah, he had a good I bet you Ted McGinley had a good time taping this episode, just acting wild and crazy the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So now we cut to the nudie bar of all places. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> So, Al, to thank you for being so understanding about my boss, I thought it only right to treat you to dinner and a show. Mrs. Darcy, I thought as a a feminist you wouldn't like places like this. Oh, no, 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 no. Feminism is about protecting a woman's rights in the workplace. Now, where that workplace happens to be is none of my concern. Left dance? Split, bitch. Now, you know, Marcy, the last time I remember her in the nudie bar was in uh, season nine. That was uh, the episode with uh, Rocky Mountains that uh, Chris and I reviewed. (laughs) But, you know, she seems a lot more comfortable in the nudie bar this time. Including Jefferson, because like I feel like the last time, remember Jefferson uh, had gotten into a lot of trouble, so there's a little bit of continuity. Like I would have thought that, uh, you know, he would have been a little more reserved in the nudie bar, right? But he's sort of off doing his own thing. Well, last last time he was in the nudie bar, he got a tattoo. <laughs> yeah, he knows to an extent he can he can show his butt and get away with it because he knows that Marcy needs to deal with Al to get the promotion. <laughs> so. Because I, I think it's funny. It's like, you know, Jefferson's sitting there and, you know, the, the girl comes over and asks asks if he wants a lap dance and Marcy says, split, bitch. <laughs> yeah. I do like that. Yeah, she's all the women in her work, all for supporting women in the workplace, wherever it happens to be. But if in the workplace you try and get her man, no, it ends there. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> right. We cut to this little scene of like, you know, Bud talking to the dancer. <laughs> so, Al, let's talk about your future. Sure, you're making tens of dollars now, but you can't work forever. And somehow I seriously doubt that your children will be there to support you. 
move into my parents' basement with me, babe. We'll, we'll live on love. Well, that and welfare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I think the sub-theme of this episode is Bud needs a guidance counselor desperately. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because oh, he hasn't graduated college yet, right? Exactly, yeah. That's what they do. <laughs> That's what they're supposed to do. I'm guessing that recruiting at, at Tremaine University is not a not a uh, big thing. <laughs> no. I mean, we found out that Tremaine is somewhat questionable, especially in our review of Calendar Girl. Yes. <laughs> especially when we get to Bud Hits the Books, we'll find a little bit more about how people get ahead in, uh, at Tremaine. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So it occurs to me that you could use a nest egg, say somewhere in the neighborhood of $3,000. Marcy, the car's not for sale. Oh, come on, Al. You know that car's not worth $3,000. Why are you being such an astoundingly stubborn human? Marcy, you see, it's a, it's a man's thing. See, unlike you leg shavers, we men... <laughs> We men like our things broken in, you know, old things, old tennis shoes, old filthy jeans, a 30-year-old toothbrush with chunkettes of Reggie Barr in them. <laughs> See, now the Dodge is like that. Dodge is just like that. Over the years, I molded that car to fit every nook and cranny of my body. And I'll tell you the truth, I don't have the, the life left over to break in another car. So my answer still must be... What was I saying? Never mind. You, Al Bundy, are a pig. I repeat, a pig. So the price of uh, the Dodge keeps going up. So we go from like $50 to like $3,000, right? But Al has this interesting line of dialogue. So he says, Al says he doesn't want to sell the car because, uh, you know, unlike you leg shavers, we meant like our things broken in, you know, like old tennis shoes, filthy jeans, a 30-year-old toothbrush, which chunk gets a Reggie bar in it. Am I the only one on the panel who has actually had a Reggie bar? I think so. Probably. The famous ball player they named this candy bar after? Peanuts make it my candy bar. Sorry, I'm the Reggie they named the bar after. Sweet caramel makes it my kind of bar. Hey, I'm the real Reggie. Have I got the outfit or not, eh? This is my kind of rich chocolatey covering. That's funny. I thought I was the real Reggie. Reggie, it's everybody's kind of candy bar. Well, I don't remember it. It was sort of like a $100,000 bar, which is sort of a um, milk chocolate covering caramel and with a cookie underneath. It's pretty good. And of course, we kept the wrappers for a while because I grew up in the Bronx. And Reggie Jackson was a hero of my childhood. The whole 77, 78, you know, when things were not going all that well in the Bronx, the Yankees were like a shining light. So yeah, yes, we all had our Reggie bars. They were very popular real thing and I, I don't know why I don't I, I guess they made it out of Chicago too I have no idea I thought they were a local thing but I guess not so <laughs> so yes Reggie Jackson number 44 he was a Yankees player and led the Yankees to at least two World Series 
So they're actually uh, what we have on it is that they're uh, originally called bun bars uh, that were manufactured in St. Paul, Minnesota, and sold across the U.S. However, they were renamed Reggie bars during the time of that that season, uh, 77, 78. Uh, actually, you know, Carolyn, I wanted to ask you, have you seen the series? It's been a while now, The, the Bronx is Burning. A little bit, yeah. I thought that was great. That I think it really depicted the era very well. It did. It did, yeah. Yeah, it was um, It was quite a time. Because the thing is that if you, were, if you were in the right neighborhood, you were okay. My neighborhood never burned. But you can see, if you went to the roof of my building, you could see the burning. And people who burned and didn't burn, it depended. There, there was a lot of, there were a lot of uh, rackets going on, let me put it that way, you know. And certain groups were able to protect themselves more than others, other certain groups. So that's basically what happened, yeah. But I grew up, uh, you know, going to a playground and going to school and having fun like everyone else. It just, it just was there were certain parts of my neighborhood you could not go to. So, you know, when they mentioned this uh, 30-year-old toothbrush with the chunkettes of Reggie Bar in it, uh, you know, it, I mean, Bud looks like he's going to throw up. I mean, that to me was like the best thing. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if you're watching what's happening on screen, I thought that was pretty funny. Well, that was pretty much my reaction. I just can't stand chunks or lumps and food. It's, oh. Al's like, you know, sort of paying attention to the nudie bar. He keeps driving the price up. And it's just funny, like, you know, Jefferson and Bud are dancing, you know, like the... The conga line with a bunch of strippers. <laughs> <laughs> man, Jefferson is all over the place in this episode, man. <laughs> he does not give a he does not give a dang about anything. Marcy is right there, and and you know maybe he maybe he knows that Marcy is preoccupied with this deal and with Mr. Shimakawa when he comes in later. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but, <laughs> but um, I have to say though, I don't I don't remember the nudie bar being this interactive. I don't remember the girls going to the audience as much, but I guess they had to for the show. Do they always like do that? Like hang out with the guys and like offer lap dances and stuff or? Uh, the agony and the extra C I think was one, right? Okay. But, but I have to say with a small space, they have a lot of conga lines. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the conga lines are funny because they are. So, <laughs> but, but I, I, I know, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't been to a lot of them, but you know, I've never seen a conga line break out at one of those clubs, but I guess I'm not going to the right ones. Maybe it's the Midwestern thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've only been to it once. I didn't didn't particularly care for it. So, <laughs> but it definitely was not this inter. The one I went to definitely was not this interactive. <laughs> <laughs> the girls were up there. We were down here. <laughs> exactly. But but that said, I, I thought I thought all the girls were very they were very pretty. They were very flirty, very funny. No, the whole point is that they're there to be funny. So yeah. I thought they all did a great job. So and and there and there were some really good pole dances among them. So good for them. Good 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 casting there. There's a really good pole dancer, the one that slides down pretty much upside down. Jefferson slides after her. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that, Annabelle. I, one, one of the weird things I always look at when I'm watching these shows is did the actor actually do his own stunts and. I, yeah, I've watched that a couple of times. I think that might actually be Ted McGinley that does that. Which is, I think it is because I was thinking is, that myself, and which is you can really see his unusual. Face quite Usually, clearly. actors don't do their own stunts, but I, I think that's Ted McGinley. Now, at the end, not to get ahead, but at the end when Marcy punches him, that's definitely not Pat Morita. No, <laughs> that's definitely not him. That's definitely a stunt actor. But I think that's Ted McGinley that went down that pole. <laughs> so I think so I too. It, I give him a lot of credit for doing that. 
<laughs> I definitely agree. <laughs> so in comes Mr. Shimakawa. We're leaving. Jefferson? <laughs> Why? What's wrong? Because I can't stand another minute in this hideous arp. Mr. Shimakawa! What brings you to the jiggly room? Quite honestly, the jiggly. (laughs) So, Miss Darcy, did you secure my dodge? Oh, yes. Well, no. Uh, actually, I'm still negotiating. You see, my husband wasn't feeling very well, and... How can I trust you to negotiate banking deals when you can't even buy a rusting hulk from a rusting shoe salesman? I can see everything with my x-ray onion eyeglasses! Please, Mr. Shimakawa, give me another chance. I will find his price. Now, this is one of the things I, I uh, sort of alluded to before. This is like one of another stereotype. I don't know if you know this, but, uh, you know, sort of Japanese men have a reputation of going to strip clubs. That's like one of like the rites of passage. It's like a lot of, you know, there's the alcohol component and then there's the uh, strip club. If you remember in uh, European Vacation. Yes. Uh, th- remember, there's the scene when they go to the uh, review Yep. They have the the can-can dancers and it's like Clark and Ellen in there and it's just like full of all these Japanese men. <laughs> I was literally thinking the- that when you said it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, like p- playing to another stereotype. I mean, I don't know, like, again, how true the stereotype is, but I, I only know it from the fit from the movies, you know, on television. But that's that's one of them. Uh, I'm kind of surprised, given how, how Marcy and Jefferson were playing to every stereotype that exists, like... I'm surprised they didn't expect that uh, Mr. Shimakawa would show up there. <laughs> They're like, you know what I mean? They had every other stereotype in the bag on this episode, but <laughs> Marcy never saw him coming there. Well, 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 I think what's funny is that Mr. Shimakawa, he can he can afford a much better strip club than the Jiggly Room, but everyone just comes to the Jiggly Room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, he would, he'd be going to the nicest one in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it sounds like Mr. Shimakawa wanted to get the local culture in. I guess, like, he didn't want to go to an upscale one. He probably wanted one that served pizza and beer, right? Because that's yeah. what he wanted. <laughs> you know, I will say that the, the Jiggly Room, and correct me if I'm wrong. Let me know if y'all agree with this statement. But, you know, at one for, you know, the early seasons, it was the, or the first, I guess the first, at least first half of the show's run, it was the nudie bar. And these latter seasons, they refer to it as the Jiggly Room. I will say the Jiggly Room looks to be classier than the nudie bar was. What do y'all think? Am I wrong there? Or but I mean, it looks more I, fun. I still I still call both of them the nudie bar, but this the Jiggly Room at least appears to be a classier place. Well, it has a kitchen. We know that because the guys get burgers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see that we see the Jiggly Room owner a couple of times. The stage looks nicer. I'm going to pull an Alex right now. Yeah. As I recall. The episode with Jerry Springer was the nudie bar. Right. right. And then it got, I got changed into that, uh, you know, the, the place where the woman goes, remember my eggs, my eggs above my legs. <laughs> yeah. So probably, I think at that point, it probably they changed sets. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, how, how does that sound? Yeah, I, that totally makes sense. You could fit it together. You could say, well, Al and his friends, that nudie bar got ruined because, you know, that my eggs, my eggs lady. So they decided to, to leave that one and go to the Jiggly Room instead. <laughs> so they had to find they had to find a new place. Right. We had uh, we had Ahmed as the uh, proprietor and this one. It's Iqbal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very stereotypical once again. <laughs> So the price keeps going up. We go from $5,000 to $7,500 to $10,000. No. No. <laughs> Ten thousand. No. <laughs> Hello, Officer Dan. What can I do for you? We got a call about an indecent sex act. I assure you, uh, I have no indecent sex act in my establishment. <laughs> Then get one. <laughs> we didn't ditch that drug stake out for nothing. Well, I, what I find funny about that is that, you know, like, so you have a nudie bar run by, I assume this is a, um, a Muslim, right? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that like, uh, you know, against a religion? Well, I thought this was, I thought this was an Indian guy, honestly. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but <laughs> well, I mean, well, you have like Indian Muslims, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Trick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. No, yeah, no. I'm just wondering if like that's sort of like their joke, right? It's almost like you know, <laughs> Carolyn, in in the in the last episode you were on with us, Death of a Briard, mm-hmm. right? With uh, when Buck died, remember? It's like you have the Catholic priest; he's effectively conjuring spirits, right? Remember, like how we <laughs> right. talked about how. It was, it's like two things that really don't go together, but that's what makes it funny. Like, I mean, to me, that's when I see like Iqbal or Ahmed, I'm like, hmm. thinking to myself, it's like, okay, they, they're making a joke. It's like, well, the owner is someone who shouldn't really have, you know, naked women running around, right? Yeah. It's, it's like the, the Jewish Santas. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Hey, Horowitz. <laughs> <laughs> But I I like Iqbal. I think he's funny. And the the actor, whose name is also Iqbal, he's probably known now for being the principal on Glee. And he has a, a fairly a fairly Caucasian name. His name is uh, Principal Figgins. And I think the story behind that was they were either going to cast an English guy or someone like Iqbal Tabor. And they went with Iqbal and they just kept his name as, as Figgins. <laughs> because why not? Yeah. Why not? That's great. Yeah, I do have to say, um, did, did anyone catch the uh, quick shout out to Tex Avery? Te- Te- no. Tex Avery, the, cartoonist. So. Yeah, the famous cartoonist. Um, I think there was a quick reference to, you know, well, when uh, Marcy is talking to him and Al's being very, very rational, actually explaining himself very well. And suddenly a woman in a red teddy walks by and he goes, oh, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> I love that. It was hilarious. But I, I think he was trying to do the same expression as the wolf in, in um, Red Hot Riding Hood. The famous 1943 cartoon by Tex Avery, because the woman in the oh, okay, yeah. red yeah. teddy. 
Oh, good catch. Good catch, Carolyn. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was a particular reference or just like a standard cartoonish reaction, but that's mm-hmm. cool. It could, it could have been that too, but I just thought it was funny that the woman was wearing like a costume a bit similar to what Red Hat is wearing. Yeah, because it's red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then in comes Officer Dan and Officer Stan. <laughs> 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 Uh, you know, I, I give Dan Tullis Jr. a, a lot of uh, <laughs> credit here. <laughs> then get one. Right. <laughs> yeah, he always delivers, man. He always delivers. He was, he was hilarious. But I didn't. I gotta say, I really didn't get. I really didn't get the point of the cops coming in. I don't know because they didn't do anything during the later fight, so I don't really, as far as I could see. So I don't really know what they were doing there. But it was funny. <laughs> Maybe they were short for time. <laughs> I think Officer Stan, though, he's just like, we didn't ditch that drug stick out for nothing. Oh, my God. That was great. Yeah, they, they just want to see an indecent sex act. That's all. <laughs> They're there for the jiggly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was another line that it really cracked me up when Marcy asked him, you know, what, what brings you here? And he goes, frankly, the jiggly. <laughs> Carolyn, I, was, I can't remember if I asked you, but did you know that Dan Tullis was a, 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 a gifted singer. Um, I put a clip of him singing on my YouTube channel. He was singing Old Man River on an Australian show. He's on Showboat and everything, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's an operatic bass, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's got a really deep, nice voice. I'll, I'll look for the clip, though. I haven't, I haven't heard him sing that. I'll, I'll look for the clip, thanks. Yeah, it's on my channel. It's uh, Old Man River. It's from an Australian show, so I uploaded it. Oh, okay. I don't understand you. You have turned down $10,000. Now, that is more money than you would make if you lived to be 10000 Marcy, it's not the money. It's the sentiment. All right. What is the sentimental value? 20000 20000 That is ridiculous. My car. All right. I'll ask. I think $20,000 is a little much to ask for a car that's made mostly of string and paper. Son, I've got Marcy exactly where I want her. Dad, at the risk of sugarcoating this, I'll just say that when it comes to finances, you're an idiot. All right, all right, you got your 20 grand. Daddy! Do we have a deal? Yes. On one condition... All right, so the price keeps going up. So we go to $20,000, and they finally shake. However, Al has one additional condition. Well, Mr. Shimakawa, you got yourself a car. (laughs) I told Mrs. Darcy, every man has his price. We do, just like every woman has hers. It's interesting. It's like, why wasn't Shimakawa just talking to you know Al directly? I guess they needed Marcy's the construct as being the go-between, right? Well, 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 so, well Luigi. He also said he also said to her like like kind of seriously, if you can't handle this negotiation, how can you handle being a bank vice president? 
I think it was a lousy thing to put Marcy through, and because it served his self interest and it was certainly unethical. But I, but I think that's, I think that's why he wasn't directly talking to Al. Although why Al didn't go right to him, I don't know. But you know, <laughs> maybe I just wanted to have fun with Marcy. Yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> Well, good news, Mr. Shimakawa, you got your car. And the job is yours, Mrs. Darcy. <gasps> because of my great negotiating skills? No, because you know how to shake it, baby. <laughs> well, in that case, consider this my resignation. So... Now Al puts on some dark glasses and we hear the <laughs> the music come on. And uh, Marcy takes off her cloak and she's in black leather lingerie. Uh. <laughs> now, you know, I have to admit, Amanda Burst did not look bad, I think, in the in the leather. No, she didn't. But was she wearing this the whole time? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, she she's really kinky, so I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think not. Right? Yeah, we 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 know how we know how kinky Marcy can be. Yeah, remember the uh, crotchless panties from uh, the last episode? <laughs> yep. I'll see you in court. And she was in court. Yes. <laughs> no, Damn guys, you! I think my funniest my funniest memory of Alex when he was on when he was the hosting the podcast was the episode where Marcy was talking about her fantasies where she was talking about the the uh, Mike Tyson George Foreman thing and Alex goes who in the hell has fantasies about George Foreman? <laughs> <laughs> so we know how kinky Marcy is. <laughs> Yeah, she's going to think for boxes. Oh, 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 all that, all that said, I think Pat Morita in a suit was a much better dancer than Amanda Burst in lingerie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Marcy has a history of punching out her bosses. You know, <laughs> if you go back to, I, I believe his name was Mister Vanderdoodle or Mister Vandal Vanderduty or something. Vanderduty. Like Vanderduty. Yeah, his name was Mister <laughs> Vanderduty. In the, I believe, season four episode, if I remember right, maybe season three. three. Season three. Season three, when they were on the plane, you know, Marcy had got the fortune teller, told her she was going to have bad luck. So she brought the Bundys with her and and he was making her rewrite the speech and make her coffee and all these different things. And finally, she had enough and punched him, punched him out at the end. So she has a history of doing this when, when, once she once she has enough of you. <laughs> And and I just rewatched that punch. There's de that's definitely not Pat Morita that she punches. <laughs> that's a stunt guy. No, and you know, and what I'm gonna say is that was like a cheap camera one because like you can sort of see it's like it cuts to Marcy. Yep. And it's like she like sort of the coat comes up over yep. his head because she's still holding it. Right. Mm. But you can you can tell it like the the flow wasn't like believable to me. Yeah. It was not believable. Well, what yeah. they did to to help with that or to attempt to help with it is they had her throw the coat over his head. That way you can't see who's standing there. But that's definitely not Pat Morita. <laughs> no, he takes a noticeable header off the table. He's actually jumping off the runway there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was it's, prob it's probably Frank Lloyd again. <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. And I have to say, that, that was a good fall because the guy couldn't see, but he still hit the middle of the table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good aim. Well, it was well planned. And you notice that the, the low lights in the bar immediately like, turned him over and started to rob him. You know, started to shake the money out of his pockets. Yeah, Probably. and we don't see his face. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All that said, though, what he did, this is, even in 1996, this was pretty actionable, you know, <laughs> what Mickey mm. McCowan did. <laughs> you know, Jim, oh, Jim, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like, I mean. Saying, I'll, I'll give him the job because he can shake it. You know, it's like, before that, he was still on the edge, but then he like, he like jumped over, it jumped over the edge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even for this show, like what he was asking her to do, or what, or what he said there at the end. I, I like it because you know how to shake it, baby. <laughs> that was too much. <laughs> yeah, I have to. When, when Marcy talks quietly to you, you are in trouble. That's when she's angriest. Yep. You know, Jeff yep. <laughs> darling. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how there's another brawl in the nudie bar. I mean, you know, and then this is one of those instances where it's like Al's kicking butt. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, you know, I've one of the comments I've made is like character consistency. There have been episodes where it's like Al gets his butt kicked, like the Ray Ray episode. Right. Yep. And it's like in the nudie bar, it's like, you know, he like pretty much it's like it's almost like he's invincible. So yeah. it's like, which one is he? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when he's in the nudie bar, he's like a machine. He's like kicking everybody's ass. But yet when he's <laughs> out on the streets, he's getting his tail kicked sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Right. Not all the time. Yeah. Not all the time. Like in, ba- in Barely Men, for example, remember like he kicked the crap out of those uh, the young guys on the stoop? Oh, yeah, sure did, didn't he? I, I, remember like we talked about that. It's like, it was like, how is it that in this episode, remember like what we said at the time, Chris? So, like, yep. How is it in this episode he's like kicking like these young kids' butts, but you know when he's fighting Ray Ray, he's getting his butt kicked. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think we pointed out that I think that was the exact same set that looked like Ray Ray's uh, stoop that he was... Uh, exactly. I mean, so... <laughs> but Alex and, and Stephen and others, you know, Stephen, I think, has touched on this more than anyone. He said back then they did what was called episodic writing, where you really didn't need consistency from episode to episode. You just focused on, well, this episode, Al's going to be a machine. He's going to kick 10 guys' ass at once. And in this episode, 10 guys are going to beat the hell out of him. You know, it's like you don't, you don't really need to, you don't really need consistency flow i guess from episode to episode i know but i mean i guess for me to be uh what, what's the word annabelle you like to use pedantic how do you say that oh pedantic pedantic that's <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just my, my neurosis uh when we look at this <laughs> i think if you sneak if you sneak up on if you ambush out you know if, if he's if he doesn't want to fight he he won't do well but if you see a smile he whipped off the glasses the guy backed into him accidentally nudged him accidentally because he was backing away from the other guys. And Al just took off his glasses, smiled, and started swinging. I love that. I, I, think, I think Al had pretty much a perfect day, aside from not getting 20, 20 grand. So now we cut back to the Bundy living room, and Al, Kelly, and Bud are eating the clams. Isn't this nice? Quiet evening alone with my loved ones. Oh, Daddy, that's so sweet. I don't gush it up. He's talking about his clams. <laughs> In other news, the president of the largest bank in Japan was arrested yesterday for starting a riot in a Chicago nudie bar. (laughs) At least Mrs. Darcy didn't get demoted to drive up teller this time. Yeah, but now she's the ATM beeper. (laughs) What's that? You know when you punch in your code and it goes beep? Yeah? Yeah, that's her. Daddy, I'm sorry you didn't get your money for your car. Got my clams. <laughs> Dig in. So we find out that the um, 
No, Shimakawa was arrested for starting a riot. <laughs> <laughs> and we also find out that Marcy, is, uh, she didn't get demoted to drive up Teller. But this time, what is she? <laughs> Annabelle, what is she doing this time? Well, now she's the ATM beeper. <laughs> God. <laughs> I mean, how many demotions would you say this is for Marcy if we go back for, over the last ten seasons? At least the fourth well, or fifth? At least, at least three, because uh, season four in 976 Shoes, that was the whole yep. Steve Leaves arc. And then in the end of season eight in Ride Scare, she says, I got demoted to drive up Teller again. And then now. So it's at least three times. There might be others. Yeah, you know, the the episode we referenced earlier, the the Mr. Vanderduty episode, I think that she thought she was going to get demoted after she punched him. But Steve said, uh, you know, you may actually get a promotion because Marcy knew about uh, the fluffster. (laughs) Yeah. She was blackmailing with the fluffster, yeah. Yeah, and at the beginning of season five, we know that Marcy got her job back by freaking on her boss's desk or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And her yep. slip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, is this bank? Is this still here on National that she's at? They never say the name of the bank, which is strange because they've seen it. They said it before in earlier seasons. I think so because in the in the Terry Bradshaw episode, it was uh, Kyoto Ma- National Bank. So yeah, the the Bank of Coyote. Yeah, the Bank of Coyote. Yeah. <laughs> No, but you know what? It's not mentioned in this episode at all. Yeah. No. I just double-checked the script. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Annabelle. Cheers. <laughs> and your friend Nitsen. Yes. I'm actually editing the transcript as we go, so there will be some changes. <laughs> uh, it's been up there a long time. And in other news, a rare strain of botulism was discovered and traced back to the all-you-can-eat clam night at the Chicago's Hobo's Motor Lodge. Fortunately, most of the tainted shellfish was stolen by a family of homeless thieves living in a dodge. So, so finally, uh, we cut to the news where... They find out that there's a rare strain of botulism was discovered and traced back to the <laughs> to the hobo's motor lodge. <laughs> it seems that the a family of uh, homeless thieves living in a dodge uh, took them all. <laughs> so, they just look at each other and credits. They don't care. Guys, you have to, I mean, think seriously, though. Botulism virus versus Bundy stomachs. Who do you think is going to win? Who's going to kill who? <laughs> I wouldn't, Bundy stomachs. Yep, I wouldn't worry about the Bundys at all. <laughs> yeah, when you survive on a diet of toaster leave-ins and toothpaste sandwiches and tang wipe and milk residue mm-hmm. and stuff, I think you can survive botch. <laughs> you can survive that. So. And Al had a vintage Slim Jim in there. <laughs> yeah, vintage Slim Jim from leftover from, from Super Bowl twelve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that i noticed the episode begins the begins the same way it began the three yeah. bundles on the couch and and piggy, and piggy way in vacation slash maternity leave yeah <laughs> all full circle mm-hmm. no ma'am we'll be right back to wrap up this week's review be sure to join their facebook group page for all the podcast news and updates be sure to subscribe to them on the apple podcast app And please leave a review telling them what you think of the show. To subscribe to their YouTube channel, 
Just go to channels and search up Married with Children podcast. Join their Patreon and support your favorite podcast with a small monthly donation. You can email them at marriedwchildrenpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for checking out this review. And we're back. So, Chris, how many botulism-infested clams are you going to eat for this episode? (laughs) (laughs) Well... You know, you know, Luigi, it, it, this may come as a surprise because uh, to our listeners, it might have sounded like we were being very critical of this episode and, and really, you know, beating on it, so to speak. But I actually like this episode. You know, I, I don't think it's like a, a Hall of Fame episode or a masterpiece by any stretch, but I do enjoy it. I find it to be funny. Uh, y- yes, it's crazy. Yes, it's corny, over the top. Yes, they hit all the stereotypes that are not. Uh, you know, certainly not necessarily true, but I will say I enjoy this episode. I find it to be funny. It's it's one that I you know I, I laugh at all throughout due to the silliness of it of it mainly. And you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was a fan of the Karate Kid growing up. You know, it's a movie that I really enjoyed. I had the video games, uh, uh, so I really enjoyed having Mr. M- uh, Miyagi on the episode. Uh, he, to me, he's still Mr. Miyagi. I always call him that. Uh, you know, his appearance was very good. Uh, he, he had some good one-liners and some good one la- you know, some good laughs. And I enjoyed seeing him there at the nudie bar. And when he said, frankly, the jiggly, <laughs> I got a good, a good laugh out of that. So I am going to give this a four out of five. I'm going to eat four, um, is it botulism uh, infested clams out of five? <laughs> so Correct. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do four out of five. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, Annabelle, how many botulism-infested clams are you going to eat for this episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, similar to Chris, um, I do actually enjoy this episode a lot, especially for a season ten episode. And there, there, there are some issues, and I think I think Carolyn's going to going to touch on those a little bit. So I'll leave that to her. But. Um, for an episode that is missing Peg and largely Kelly as well, um, it, it's 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 a lot of fun, I think. And it's good to have another Marcy and Jefferson-focused story. And like we've touched on before, I think Ted McGinley is having one hell of a good time in this episode because he has just gone crazy and he's doing it to the fullest, which, it, which if he hadn't, the joke wouldn't have worked so well. But it's a good one for Amanda Burst, I think, for in in a, in a lot of ways. Some maybe not, but that's like two episodes. If we go down, if we go by production code order, that's two episodes in a row now. She, she's been in kinky lingerie. But what else is new? A lot of great references, topical references. Again, um, if you're not familiar with Family Matters, I, I suppose like an audience today might not be as familiar. But we all remember Urkel and doing the Urkel and Stefan Urkel. Kelly's not in the episode, which it doesn't really matter because it sounds a bit like she has a cold anyway. I feel like there's a few unnecessary lines where they just like they just push the joke a little bit too far. It's just random lines like, you know, Kelly saying um, every bo- every bed is shaped like a box car, and then she could have ended it with with so I heard, or and then she has to say so I heard from my slutty friends who go there all the time, except not me. I'm like we already know the joke and where it's going. 
she didn't need to say all the rest. And there's a couple of instances like that I just picked up on um, throughout the episode. But it's not enough to dampen the fun of it. I think um, Jefferson is largely responsible for a lot of that fun. And it's great send-up of all the patronizing patronizing things that <laughs> Americans hosting a Japanese man, of course, they they go all out. And um, the way the, the set of the Darcy house is dressed with all the little Japanese set pieces and props, it's just hilarious. And it's just, you know, you totally get that joke and it's just... You know, of course, they would act that way. Pat Morita is a great guest star, and he's so recognisable. So I'm very pleased that they got him to play the the. I, I, yeah, and I still call him Mr. Miyagi, even though I was going to call him that or or Arnold. But he's one of those very familiar actors, and I'm so glad he was still working up until this point, and and continued to do so until his death, basically. Yeah. So I think on the whole. Because of its enjoyment value, I will give it, I will eat <laughs> three and a half botulism-infested or infected clams, even though I don't eat seafood at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, Carolyn, how many botulism-infected clams will you eat for this episode? <laughs> well, I think I think Annabelle touched on the um, main glory of this episode, which is Pat Morita. And uh, and Tim McGinley's performances, I think Pat Morita. He's an old hand. He's worked with. He's probably worked with some of these people behind the scenes, especially before. Probably he knew everyone in Hollywood. He was well loved. Everyone loved him. It's kind of like a kind of like a male Betty White back in the day. <laughs> God rest their souls. <laughs> but um, but it's hard for me to get past. I mean, Marcy is always one of my favorite characters. I don't mind seeing her brought down a peg. I don't mind her seeing seeing her humiliated, but this was, for me, it was a bit over the top. It was a bit too much to take, to really enjoy. When she was dancing on that, when she was trying to dance on the, I know she's a, I know she's a kink, I know she's kinky, I know she's a slut shamer and all those, all those nasty things, but when she was forced to dance on that runway to save her job, it just kind of hit me, I don't know. I really like it when married with children, married with children in real life. I don't like to intersect very much. Sometimes they do, and it was hard for me to get past it, really. And of course, it's not real. Of course, it's all fiction. But it came a bit too close to some some conversations I've had in my own life. So it's like you know, this for that was a bit. So, uh, however, the, the funny stuff. I mean, I thought that I thought that everyone's story arc was very logical in this episode. I really liked the way that. Alan Marcy, there's a lot of Alan Marcy interaction, which I always love. It was very funny. Uh, like I said before, Ted McGinley was amazing. You know, he got to really shine. He really got to shine doing stuff which would be unwatchable if he didn't go with Fallout, like Chris said. So overall, um, Annabelle mentioned a lack of Kelly. I thought there was a few good bud scenes, but again, they were like kind of sad too in a lot of ways. So... I'm afraid I'm only going to open up three botulism-infested clams for this episode. And that's mostly Pat Morita. Okay. Very good. So I don't have a lot much more to talk about than what I think has already been mentioned. I mean, for me, you know, when we interviewed uh, Michael Moyer, I mean, he had talked about, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, we had asked the question about uh, sort of the quality of the writing as time went on. I mean, and I think rightly so. He mentioned that, you know, as time went on, especially like when we're talking about, you know, the end of season 10, you know, the ideas had started to run out. So instead of uh, jumping the shark, 
which had become uh, the phrase had come from happy days. He he talked about pole vaulting the ocean. Remember that one, Annabelle? Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I said at this point, you know, there was nothing that they wouldn't do, you know, just to get a joke. So mm-hmm. I get it. And I mean, I think that this episode was uh, really, I think, like a tribute to Pat Morita. He made it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the writing was very good. It wasn't great, but it was good. I think, you know, Ted McGinley definitely had a lot of fun. And I think I had a lot of fun watching him have a lot of fun on camera. But otherwise, like, it was a lot of recycled jokes, too. I mean, there wasn't uh, a lot of, like, earth-shattering, like, new areas of comedy that they hit on this episode. But I will say it was a decent episode in that it, it is watchable. You know, I mean, there, there have been a couple of duds <laughs> uh, so far this season. Uh, so I'm going to give this episode a three and a half. I totally agree. Uh, you know, kudos to, to Pat Morita for agreeing to to come on the, you know, the, the show and uh, and be a sport and go along with all the jokes. <laughs> you know, as we've all said, you know, we, we hit every stereotype you can think of, you know, for the Japanese culture. And he was willing to go along with it and, and he was willing to get punched out there at the end. <laughs> so. That uh, that really uh, saved the episode and made it funny in my book. You know, this is I, I always I have I have nicknames for episodes a lot of times, and I refer to this one as the Mr. Miyagi episode. <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of like you know I've got you've got the the Terry Bradshaw episode, and you've got the you know the Pamela Anderson episode, and so on and so forth. This is the the Mr. Miyagi episode to me. So <laughs> wax on, wax off. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not, right. not, nothing like a bunch of pros at their best really I just wish they had better writing that's all yeah okay and that's it for this week's episode of the Married with Children podcast just want to thank you again Carolyn it's always a pleasure to have you on I know our fans really yes. love having you on and uh, we uh, look forward to having you on again uh, sometime soon yeah definitely it's always fun having you Carolyn thanks Chris thanks Luigi thanks Annabelle and Annabelle. Uh, Always enjoy it. Yeah. So, like I said, so this is one of our gender uh, balanced episodes. So, what do you get? What did you ladies think of this? I thought it was great. I wanted to be on with with Carolyn again, and and um, yeah, it's probably probably season late season ten is probably a, a good time to have a, a more gender balanced episode review. Yeah. I said, and I know, and I know our fans are looking forward to uh, having that women's round table. So hopefully uh, we start. Yes, I have that, to organize right? that. Soon. <laughs> now that I have a regular schedule, I'd be happy to be on that. Next week, Chris and I will be back when we review Al Goes to the Dogs. Al decides to build a doghouse for Lucky, but when he makes an absurd amount of noise in the backyard, Marcy bribes a building inspector to inspect Al's work just to harass him. When the inspector tells him that the house is not up to its code, Al, with Kelly's wealthy boyfriend, Carlos, tear it down and rebuild it again and again to get it right. Meanwhile, Kelly desperately tries to get Carlos's attention. She spends a lot of Al's money, which he swindles from Carlos, to go to the salon to achieve the natural look of the women of his village. Thus, she's spending a lot of money to look like she spent no money on her looks. (laughs) Bud says, you are your mother's daughter. Kelly says, well done. Carlos has spent a lot of money to come to America to get away from this village, and Al ends up with a lot of Carlos's money. Oh, wow. 
So tune in again next week. Same Bundy time, same Bundy channel.